Hi there, and welcome to a special edition of the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein, and on today's podcast, I want to bring you an incredible conversation, a moving conversation uh, that I was privileged to have with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. Uh, They are the co-directors of a new documentary called The Vietnam War. And to set it up, we had this conversation uh, the other day in Washington, D.C. at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which is one of the most sacred spots in Washington, in my opinion, and just a... Uh, I think an appropriate place to to tee up this important documentary. Uh, it is a long documentary. It is a, it is a comprehensive uh, and exhaustive look uh, that's airing on PBS at the Vietnam War for all sides, and it includes quite a bit of the personal stories, which is why the setting was so appropriate. So check out the conversation with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. You know what? The the real heroes are the men that died. 19, 20-year-old high school dropouts. They didn't have escape routes that the elite and the the wealthy and the privileged had. And that was unfair. And so they looked upon military services like the weather. You had to go in and you'd do it. But to see these kids who had the least to gain there wasn't anything to look forward to. They were going to be rewarded for their service in Vietnam. And yet, their infinite patience, their loyalty to each other, their courage under fire uh, was just phenomenal. And you would ask yourself, how does America produce young men like this? And that was a clip from the new PBS documentary, The Vietnam War. Starts airing just this week on PBS. It is 10 episodes, 18 hours. Thank you for being here, guys. Thank you. We're here at, at I, in my opinion, one of the most sacred spots in all, in all of Washington. Uh, a hallowed ground, a special place. And you see behind us the people that come hour after hour to make that personal connection with those names on the wall. How does that fit with the story that, that you two have, have told so well in this The Vietnam War is unresolved business for the United States, and this is one of the few places where you can kind of open up a wormhole and get into the events behind each one of those names. It's not significant that they're 58,000 plus. What's significant is that each single name represents an extraordinary story, the loss for a particular family, for a mother, uh, maybe children involved, and we're interested in the intimacies of those stories. We're emotional archaeologists that are trying to build a history of the Vietnam War, finding out simply what happened by doing it from the bottom up. We're not disinterested in what takes place in the White House or in Hanoi or in Saigon, but we're intimately involved in what it's like for particularly soldiers to be in battle, but also what people who crowded this mall in protest of the war felt, what Gold Star uh, mothers felt, what uh, policy wonks and journalists felt. And, and, and to me, this place is symbolic of something about Vietnam that we've done right. It was hugely controversial when it was proposed, but it has in, in some ways been so accepted that I would argue that it's not just one of the most important places in Washington, it's one of the most important places in the United States. I did a history of the national parks, and to me, being here is like being on the rim of the Crane Canyon or looking at Yosemite Valley or, or feeling the awe that you feel uh, at the battlefield, now quiet battlefield at Gettysburg or Antietam. Talk to me about how, how you 
brought those stories together because you tell the macro story as well. You yes. tell the, you do talk about Washington and Saigon, and but you also tell so many more personal stories. Yeah, I mean that was a great challenge of the project was to never lose sight of the human cost of the war and to be reminded of each name, as Ken was saying, but to understand not just what happened but why. Why did our government make the decisions to send hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Americans to Vietnam to fight? Um, what happened? when they went there, what happened when they came home, and what was going on in Vietnam. So we interviewed 100 people, 79 of them are in our film, from both American and Vietnamese perspectives. People who fought in the war, people who fought against the war. Vietnamese who were on the winning side, on the losing side, civilians and soldiers, men and women. And between collecting all these little pieces, all these individual testimonies, we've been able to intertwine this incredibly complicated narrative into what we hope is a coherent whole of 18 hours where you start at the beginning in 1858 when the French begin colonizing Indochina and you end today and you are taken on an epic journey, almost an immersive experience, kind of a visceral reliving of the Vietnam War. And we hope, as Ken was saying, that by taking you on that journey, we ourselves have been on a journey to try to figure out what happened and make sense of it. And um, by the end, we think we've shed some new light on this really, really important story. And I've seen you refer to it as the most complicated project yes. you've ever yes, been involved in. Yes, without a doubt. Well, t tell me why, because you've, you've done well, some meaty things in the past. <laughs> well, I think a lot of it is that all of us are burdened by a lot of conventional wisdom about the Vietnam War that just turns out not to be true. So we benefited, us as individuals as well as filmmakers, from shedding our baggage. Uh, we have no preconceptions. No, you know, We don't have an axe to grind or a political agenda. So it was important for us to unpack what had happened and then try to repack it with the new scholarship, the interviews with the veterans and, and never-before-seen archives. I think also that unlike the Civil War and World War II subjects of films that we've struggle to tell, um, they, have, they, they have redemptive qualities. You know, the Civil War ended slavery and brought the country together, and the Second World War did all the good things that it did. But this is a moment where we struggle to find those uh, redeeming uh, features. And, and what happens is, is that makes it all the more important to tell these stories factually right, to intertwine the narrative in a way that permits you to see the macro, but also the, mi the micro, and figure out when and where you do that shift, and how you move to North Vietnam, and how you move to South Vietnam, as well as to the streets in America, or in the front parlors of America. And I think all of that conspires to make it kind of complicated to tell, but then in the end, so satisfying when you can do it, because what you do find is that the redemption comes in the accumulation of these individual stories and moments of bravery, of courage, of caring, of love, of fellowship, all the things that we presume are absent in, in a horrible story about war, but in fact are present here as they are in almost every uh, event that we've, we've covered. And so it's been a great, great, great process for us. So what are some of the, the big myths or the, the preconceived notions that you've found yourselves exploding or at least explaining in a, in a different way. Wow, well, it's really almost hard to know where to start with that. We really went sort of basically everything we thought we knew. We had to leave at the door and start over. Um, you know, there are many, many preconceptions and myths about the war. Uh, one of the things that we tried very hard to rectify is sort of myths about American soldiers. Most soldiers, almost all of them, went over to Vietnam and did their duty honorably and came home and lived their lives productively. And so the myths of Vietnam veterans as drug-crazed, hopeless, living on the streets. I mean, there are many veterans who suffered, but most have been enormously productive citizens, and they're proud of their service, and we need to thank them for that. And that's certainly a lesson that we've all learned from the Vietnam War, is that we need to never forget that the soldiers are not responsible for the decisions 
that the leaders make, and we should never confuse the warriors with the war. And more than 40 years later, do you do you still see the nation wrestling with these the, the, yeah, the same indeed. the same issues, the same concerns, and the same the same way of thinking that, that that led to the war? You know, another way to talk about it is to think about the echoes in the present moment. Even though we began this film in 2006 and finished it before the current national election that just passed, uh, this is about mass demonstrations taking place all across the country against the current administration about a White House in disarray, obsessed with leaks, a president accusing the media of lying, about big, huge document drops of stolen classified material, about uh, a country polarized and disagreeing with itself, about uh, asymmetrical warfare and accusations that a political campaign reached out to a foreign government during time of a national election to affect that election. So, you know... These were all true in 2006 when we started, and along with dozens of other things. But I think it reminds us that a good deal of the divisions that we experience today, that hyper-partisanship, had their seeds in Vietnam. But that history can be, just in general, regardless of the topic, an extraordinarily help, good help in helping us understand this moment. And that's the great thing about the Vietnam War, that if you can put your arm around it and permit yourself to tolerate opposing points of view and understand that in all wars, but particularly in Vietnam, more than one truth is true at the same time, it might help us as a country begin to have conversations that we haven't had, intimate conversations between fathers and sons. What did you do in the war, Dad? Or conversations between grandmothers and granddaughters. Why did you go to that uh, demonstration here at the Washington Monument in November of 1969? Why were you opposed to the war? Uh, I think all of these things permit us a chance to, to maybe get back to what we do best, which is unum and not pluribus. One of the more profound points I, I felt in, in watching this was one of the voices you have uh, pretty early on in one of the early episodes saying that there was a mistaken thinking of this as a, in a Cold War context, yes. and in fact it was the end of colonialism. It, it made me think if, if we're always doomed to misunderstand the point that we're living in, and, and during this time <laughs> of tumult, are we misunderstanding the macro forces because we're so wrapped up in the day-to-day? Is it possible that that is the human condition? As you very astutely point out, we do our best, and our leaders do our best, and that's, I think, one thing that we had to really discipline in a disciplined way, go back and say we can't judge the past based on what we know now. We really have to try to put ourselves back into what did they know, what were they trying to figure out, what were their goals. And so, yeah, in the time of the Cold War, there was a threat of nuclear annihilation. There was a genuine fear that we might all blow each other up and that we had to find a way out of this existential threat to mankind. And so in that context, the war in Vietnam actually made a lot of sense. Uh, The fact that it didn't work out is not to say that there wasn't good intentions in going there in the first place. That was a huge um, relearning of the narrative that we had to go through. Uh, one thing I enjoyed uh, was was to see, even though they weren't central to the narrative at that point, a young JFK, a young LBJ, right. and members of Congress, like Nixon when he was out of office, reacting in real time. They, they don't know the full story any more than the public did. That's exactly right. And, and, and that's what you want to do. And I think in the case of Vietnam, it's particularly wonderful that we have the presidential tapes that permit us to have intimate relationships with the people who are supposed to be the macro top-down voices right. in addition to the bottom-up voices. But in our first episode, which is a good deal of table setting and, and, and getting to JFK's inauguration, we wanted to introduce who are going to be the principal players. The Vice President of the United States, Richard Nixon, with a set of opinions. 
uh, this young, wet behind his years congressman and then later senator who is migrating tremendously in his own beliefs, first thinking, stay the hell out of there, and then beginning to sort of line up with the central thinking of both parties that we needed to be there. Uh, a master of the Senate, Lyndon Johnson. All of these people are going to populate the rest of our episodes, and we wanted to sort of introduce them uh, as they started out, just as the way you do in an epic novel. You know, where did this general uh, begin his career? And, and, and I, I think it, it's really worthwhile to see them in action early on in their professional lives, because pretty soon this war is going to overtake them and completely dominate their administrations, uh, certainly uh, Nixon and, and Johnson, but also Kennedy as well. I wanted to ask about Nixon and Johnson in particular, and if there's something you feel like history has gotten wrong about, about them. Did, did, did you learn something fundamental about their mindset? Because people have heard the tapes, they've read the biographies. and you No, know, but I think we would argue that, you know, even for ourselves, we had read the biographies to some degree and we thought we'd heard the tapes, but we really haven't. Because putting them in context and listening to what they're really saying in real time as it's happening and hearing the tone of voice and who they're talking to and the kind of jokes they're making and just generally their mood and what they're, you know, what they had for breakfast and just the, the back and forth of just a sort of casual conversation. It gives you an insight, like Ken was saying, they're, they're human beings. They live up on some huge pedestal, even if they're deeply flawed. We don't know them as people. We never have known them as people, at least speaking for ourselves, until we heard these tapes in the context of this film. And we think that the, the conversations will be revelatory. And what you really hear, especially with Johnson, is a lot of doubt mm -hmm. and angst about what he is doing. And yet he doesn't seem to feel he has any choice. He feels trapped that he has to increasingly commit to Vietnam and escalate the war and keep on throwing sort of good money after bad, basically. And he doesn't see any way out. He keeps saying there's no daylight in Vietnam, and yet he keeps on doing it. And he knows on some level you can hear in his voice this isn't going to work out well, mm -hmm. but there's no way to sort of get off the, the, the speeding train that's going down the track. And of course, you, you don't just tell an American story here. Right. You, you tell a global story, and you also tell it from the from the side of the Viet Cong. Yeah. You interview uh, former former soldiers, people involved on, on the other side. Why was that important for this story? You know, when Americans talk about the Vietnam War, they just talk about themselves. Right. And that's true of the Hollywood movies and most of the books. And it was really important to us to realize there are two other countries involved, one of which, by the way, disappeared off the face of the maps of the world. And that was um, an incredibly wrenching experience for them. And so we felt it was really incumbent upon us to triangulate all of these things, to have multiple perspectives. And so we interviewed North Vietnamese soldiers and North Vietnamese civilians and Viet Cong guerrillas and South Vietnamese army guys and South Vietnamese civilians, even South Vietnamese protesters and diplomats to just sort of, you know, sort of complement the, the wide range, the dozens and dozens of Americans uh, that we have. And I think what they do is they show the similarity of the experience of war. You know, our GIs, either Marine or, or Army, sound an awful lot like the VC and the NBA and they, vice versa. They've aged the same too. And they've aged yeah. the same way. And at the end, you can, you know, you see the wonderful coming together and you sort of wish human beings, could we just skip to episode 10, you know, and it would be over. Um, but it, it's, it's hugely instructive. It was important to hear those voices because I would argue that one of the reasons why things did not go well for us is that we kind of had a hubris and an arrogance that didn't permit us to learn about our enemy or more important, even to learn about our allies and the nature of the people we were supposedly there to try to save. And all of those things came back to bite us. The, uh, the underappreciation of the, of the commitment of the, of the opposition, but also the culture that would have ha had us 
um, attend to our ally and its people in a different fashion than we did because we were constantly producing more enemy by indiscriminate bombing and in indiscriminate firepower uh, all the time. And, and that's, you know, counterproductive. Uh, one one thing, I, you mentioned the protests that, that were so prevalent in the, the very ground that we're standing on right now. What is the lesson to, to your guys' mind about the what the protests meant? There, there's some of the iconic images of the Indeed. Vietnam era from the American side. Did they matter? Did they change the course of the war? Did they change understanding of the war? Well, if that's a very complicated question, which really we take 18 hours to explore, and there's not one simple answer. But one of the things that we have taken away in studying this period is to see that, on the one hand, you could see... Uh, the fact that we had, you know, protests in the streets against the government was maybe a sign of weakness in our country, and maybe our country, you could say, was torn apart by the conflict over the war, but also is a sign of great strength of our democracy, that the people got engaged because we had a draft, because the way the war was covered, because it was important, because people were dying and we were killing other people. This mattered to our country, and there was a great debate that happened in a public way that we think was healthy for our democracy and ultimately... Ultimately, our government responded that the war became untenable and the public no longer supported it and it was time for it to be over. And we were just speaking earlier today with the General McCaffrey, who was a, a decorated veteran of the war, and he said he thought that was the greatest thing that happened, was that the, the people rose up ultimately and told the government enough. Democracy, even if it was uh, ugly at the time. Right, well, you know, we, we, we had a North Vietnamese soldier who just said, you know, I did see the protest as a sign of weakness. I saw the film and I realized, oh no, yeah. it's a sign of strength. And he then is reflecting back at his own closed society in which the regime, the communist regime, tightly controlled the flow of information, no death notices, never admission of any defeat and never admission of any atrocity, no protest allowed. If you protest, you would disappear. Uh, but here, you know, except if you were violent, you weren't subject to arrest and as Lynn said by you know towards the end a majority of Americans had turned against the war and their politicians and their elected officials reflected that that desire to change that. So turn, turning back to this current political moment and you've been very critical of, of President Trump at the time at, at one point you talked about him as a as an insult to our history. When you saw Charlottesville and the reaction that he had, what went through your mind as a historian, as an American? Well, I criticized the president, and, and, and then he was just the uh, presumed Candidate. nominee yeah. right. uh, for the Republican Party only once. Um, and I, I did feel uh, very strongly that he was not uh, prepared for or ready for the da, da job, and it was seemed temperamentally completely different from all the other presidents that had ever served. And I, I think that we are in a moment where we have to sort of deal with this and, and understand and, and see whether our institutions can hold in the face of these things. And do you, do you feel like this this moment is bearing out uh, an ability for those institutions? Yeah, to, very to much so. I'm, I'm, I think history makes you an optimist. And I can tell you there are a lot worse periods in American history than people might believe now. There are some people that have just passed us by that actually think this is a, a great moment. Sure. And, and that's uh, entirely uh, their right to do that. But I, I think the lessons of Vietnam remind us, particularly now in the wake of Charlottesville, that unless we are... Um, adamant about what we believe in collectively, 
then the Civil War, the subject of another film we've made, is still going on. As the uh, scholar Barbara Field says in our film, not only can still uh, still going on, but could still be lost. And that now it turns out that even uh, the correctness of the supposedly good war, World War II, and the, our triumph over the Nazis, in fact, in debt. If you make room and give breathing space and oxygen to white supremacists in the KKK and the Nazis, you are against the tide of American history and American values, more importantly. Do you think, I mean, it seems what we've just been seeing recently is that we do have an ability and a willingness to go back and examine these painful chapters in our history and try to figure out what they mean, and that's slavery, the Vietnam War. I'm not equating these things at all, but, sure. you know, we, are, we have to look at ourselves squarely in the mirror and try to understand why these things happened and what we can do about it now. And the only way to do that is, like I'm saying, by being honest and true and fair about what actually happened. And facts do matter, by the right. way. And that's, that's a hugely important thing that has, I think, atrophied from our national discussion. It becomes very simple if you don't agree with someone to say that they're making stuff up. And that's a terrible situation. This is all of the, uh, the, the failures of other empires and other regimes of the past have come that way. And we've spent 10 years trying to get the facts right so that we can uh, permit to coexist in this film all these different points of view and not make the other wrong, but listen to them. And when we listen, then we're not in our hardened silo absolutely certain. Certainty is the death of any real understanding or communication. Suddenly you could suddenly hear somebody else. Our Vietnam vets, uh, both in the film and who have attended screenings, have said the best part of this is learning what the enemy felt like. I had such respect for them. I feared them. I hated them. But I had such respect. And to hear them now as old grandpas, too, um, is a a really important gift uh, of the film. And I hope people can sort of, we're so at each other's throats these days, maybe this might help us pull some of those fuel rods out and have a civil discourse. Let's hope. Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, thank you so much for, for, for being here. Really appreciate thank your time. You. Thank you. Uh, again, the, the Vietnam War starts airing on PBS stations this week. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our thanks to the folks uh, at PBS and Ken Burns and Lynn Novick for being part of this conversation. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Click on us next time.